Hi, I'm Tanya Gray-Thompson and I was on the board of the London Legacy Development Corporation for 10 years. Being in Singapore, leading up to the final announcement, sitting next to Seb and I couldn't pick up my glass of water because my hands were shaking and he just said to me, keep smiling. Such a collective team spirit. I've never experienced anything like that in my career. I generally thought my job would be to go, and what about the Paralympics? Never once had to do it, not once. Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson is in a pretty unique position in that she was part of London's original bid for the Olympic and Paralympic Games, was then part of the team who delivered the Games in 2012 and then served for a decade on the board of the London Legacy Development Corporation. Nobody else has had such a long-term connection with Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. Originally appointed in late 2012, Tanny stepped down after serving for 10 years, but is joining us on the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park podcast to look back at a remarkable journey from a brownfield site and a vision to what is now the UK's most exciting urban park. I was involved in the bid for 2012 for the Olympics and Paralympics and, you know, lots of different discussions about where it was going to be. And we went out to Stratford and it was like, da-da! And I remember just sitting there going, okay, right. I need a bit of imagination here. And it was right at the early stages. And, you know, there were a couple of sort of concept drawings and not much more than that. And I remember just thinking, this is, you kind of know it's big to build a park. But this was like, this is just way bigger because, you know, we were straight into, you know, Brownfield site and we don't know what's there. And you suddenly just like, this is the the serious end. And that's before you got into any details. So I just remember just thinking, I'm I'm not sure anyone's going to have enough imagination to think about what it could look like when, when we finally get there. Did you, in your heart of hearts, think that London would one day be... For the third time, a host city of an Olympic Games and, and hosting the Paralympic Games. Yeah, I mean, I think it was made really clear with previous bids through, you know, Birmingham and Manchester, and I was involved with both, was that it had to be London. You know, I think the IOC had made it pretty clear it had to be London. So this was kind of our moment. Um, and, you know, looking back with when Manchester went against Sydney, yeah, it was disappointing, but it wouldn't have been the right time for the country or for British sport to, to host the 2000 Games. Because if you, you look, you know, uh, that the bid process was 93. The Barcelona Games had been great for the Olympians. Then Atlanta was, was a nightmare. One gold medal from Redgrave and Pinson. So, you know, 2000, it would not have delivered what it did, you know, 12, 12 years later. So I think it gave everyone the chance to kind of reset, rethink and, and think about what it had to be. But... It's also easy to forget that, you know, so much of the way through, everyone kept saying, it's Paris's turn. Don't bother. You know, literally, there is no point. And, um, you know, Barbara Cassani, who, you know, came in originally, you know, and, you know, some amazing women, Tessa Jowell, you know, kind of putting the teams together, just went around and convinced people almost one by one this was the, the right thing to do. And it, it did feel like it was London's time. And it felt like that, you know, right through to, to games delivery. Talk us through what happened when you're in Singapore. We'll come to the, the winning moment next, but what could still be done when you landed in Singapore? Could that bid still have been won and lost at that point? It absolutely could have been lost at that point because it was about just meeting lots of people. Tony Blair's Prime Minister and Cherie uh, met huge number of IOC members, orchestrated down to what they wore to meet different people and you know the timing. We all had tasks to do in terms of meeting people, convincing, you know, talking to them. 
and it was the stage, you know, it, it could have been lost at that moment because I think the reality of this had been us against Madrid. The Paris votes probably would have gone to Madrid, where us against Paris, the Madrid votes came to us. So kind of trying to work out the numbers. And then sitting there, I remember um, sitting in a room with Steve Redgrave and Debbie Jevons, and she was incredible. Um, she worked on bid and delivery. Sitting in a room with each city getting knocked out, eating chips. And, and there was that moment when, oh, wow, this is us against them. And I think Paris had already had a celebration party. They were so convinced that they'd won. So um, it, it was an amazing day, quite stressful, knowing that this is this moment in time. Because if we hadn't have done it then, I'm not sure politically there would have been the will to do it in another way. And and a huge amount does go down to Barbara Kassani and, and Tessa Jowell, obviously, who who was just brilliant at just very nicely explaining to people this is what we were going to do and wasn't it a good idea. So it, it did feel like if it hadn't have happened then, I'm, I'm not sure it would have happened. Because Paris, as we know, have had to wait 12 years because the Games has to go around the globe, of course, and they've had to wait their turn. And we're in a very different situation now, aren't we, in the world, politics, economy, everything else that goes with it. It was perhaps a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It was because if you look at what happened, uh, you know, 2008 with the stock market crash, you know, the implications that then had for Rio. Now, I don't think Rio particularly wanted a Paralympic Games, you know, even right until the last minute, there was a risk it might not happen, let alone when you start adding on sort of geopolitics as well as financial and everything else. I think it would have been too difficult. And, you know, when you're sort of, you're trying to bid seven years out from a Games and what it's going to cost to put a spade in the ground and what, steel's going to cost you know it's really difficult you know anyone who who sort of kind of complains a bit about the budget it's got to understand the size and scale of what this was happening you know a massive infrastructure project and then you know even then when it came to you know the village and housing and and how they thought the money was going to come in from that and how it happened you know you some of this stuff is you you can't predict it um so I think for me, one of the, the really fascinating things have been involved in terms of, you know, when we'd won and making the games happen was that conversation around legacy. A really important legacy is what happened, what's there now is the communities, new housing, schooling, apprenticeships, some doing really cool stuff with apprenticeships in terms of getting women involved in the building industry. And again, something that's a bit forgotten about um during LOCOG, like the procurement process, actually going to companies that had little diversity saying, at least measure your diversity. If you want money from games organisers, you have to step up. So there's lots of things that have happened because of the games that become really easy to forget in, in, in time. Take us back to the moment then when the president of the IOC was walking on the stage, an envelope, and all the photographers... They were all in front of the, the French delegation, is that right? Yeah, there was one guy in front of us and you know a couple of people milling around. Most people were in front of Paris. And I, this is the point I said to Seb, oh, okay, do they know? And he's like, they don't know. You know, we, we would have been, to- you know, we w- nobody knows. And I was like, okay. And it felt like forever. And there'd been lots of speeches and presentations and stuff happening. And when Jacques Rogge said, and the winning city is, and it was like, la, and everyone went ballistic. It was an amazing feeling, just like hugging people and just everyone jumping up and down. And I remember the next day there was a, a picture in one of the national newspapers and it was us, uh, the team winning. And I've sort of 
got my hands sort of clenched and Seb's up on his feet and Matt Pinson's about three foot in the air. And I had to come back that night. I remember my dad ringing me saying, oh, have you this picture? And he rang the editor in the newspaper and said, oh, picture on your front page. Um, my daughter's in it. Can I have a copy? Whoever my dad spoke to went, are you sure? It was like, well, my daughter's Tanny Gray Thompson. and I'm, uh, you know, Peter Gray. And, and they sent him a, a, a properly printed out picture. I've got it on my wall in my office. I mean, fair play to them for doing it. And they probably thought he was some slightly mad old man. But um, that every time I look at that picture, it's everything that, came with it to get to that point and and then you know after people like yeah we knew we were going to win I, I I think that bit is that we didn't know it was it was just coming together of a whole bunch of people who probably traditionally wouldn't have sat in a room together take us inside the party you had that night then what happened so I kind of missed the main party because I had to come back that night although so three of us had to come back that night it was myself Matt Pinson and the chief operating officer and, and this was, I have to say, this was pretty cool. So I got to the airport before the other guys and I got to the check-in desk and um, they were just bouncing about it. And I got to the front to check in and they said, oh, you know, thank you so much for winning the games. It was like, yeah, quite a lot of other people involved. There really were. And uh, they were just like, thank you so much. Thank you. We, we want to kind of, you know, say thank you. Would you be okay to fly back first class? Yeah, no, that, that would be lovely. Thank you. And... Um, Matt arrived just a bit after me and uh, he was like, he said, have you got a first class ticket? I went, yeah. And, uh, and they then said to him, we're really sorry, we haven't got any space in first. And uh, Matt was saying to me, he's like, we are quite different sizes. And he was like, you're too small to fit in a business class seat, uh, first class seat. You know, they're like, give, give me the first class seat. It was like, you must be joking. Yeah, and, and actually my feet didn't touch the floor, but, you know, um, that was an amazing moment. And I, I kind of at the time was just like, oh, wow, I can't believe I've got to miss it. That's like really uh, hard. But then landing in London that morning, uh, getting a phone call from a friend saying, have you seen the news? And I'd literally, I was in baggage control, just switched on my phone. And she was like, get out of London. And I was like, what's happening? She said, there's, there's bombings in London. And uh, I remember sitting in the airport just go, oh, wow. Because another part of our strapline was... Um, the eyes of the world are upon us. And and that was like just the stark reality of what had happened the day before and then this day and then as it all unraveled, you know, through through the, the news of that day, what happened, you know, and, and the bomb on the bus outside the BMA. And um, there was a conference at the BMA and they had loads of doctors, obviously, you know, who, who went out onto the street and we're trying to save lives. And um, I don't think that enormity was lost on anybody, again, in terms of, uh, okay, what are we going to do? Because we've got to make this really good. you know. And I think, you know, everyone I worked with at different points, that was always at the back of minds. You know, this is the yin and yang of, of sport. You've got the story, Martine Wright, you know, who double leg amputee through that, who then got to compete in 2012. I, I don't think I've ever had so much emotion in in the space of 24 hours from this massive high to this down to we've got to get this right. So you had seven years to deliver the games. What was your role during that time? And I asked you that question because I heard you in a documentary saying that you thought that your attendance at these various meetings at five minutes towards the end, your role would be, and what about the Paralympics? But you didn't find that at all. It was very much 
a planning process that involved both games? The planning process was incredible because it was both games and that message came very clearly from Seb uh, as the chair and from Paul Dighton as the chief exec. I genuinely thought my job would be to go, and what about the Paralympics? Never once had to do it, not once. And that was amazing. So I, I had an ambassadorial role. I sat on some committees, did lots and lots of different things, sat in planning consent meetings. Uh, and it it was a lot of fun. It was. Um, I, I do remember the logo reveal. And I remember not many people really liked it. And I remember going into the office the next day and talking to a senior exec and saying, oh, wow, that was quite hard because... You know, the interview, there are loads of journos there saying, what did you think of it? And I went, oh, well, it's really interesting. You know, like, please don't interview me about that. And um, I remember the senior exec saying, it's good. I went, what, what, what do you mean it's good? Like, everybody hates it. And he's like, yeah, our recognition is massive. Like, everybody knows what the logo is. He said, you know, I maybe preferred people to like it. But he said, by the time we get to the games, people will love it. And he was absolutely right. You know, it's like a huge number of badges and luggage and stuff. So that that was one of those those moments that was great. What was it like when you were kind of going in to work and the planning was happening and the venues were being built and the village was being built? How exciting a time was that seeing that infrastructure, that change on the landscape in what is now Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park? It was amazing from seeing, um, you know, buildings being dismantled, um, some of the ecological stuff in terms of earth cleaning and the thought process and, you know, cleaning the rivers. I remember seeing some of the canals and just like, oh, wow. And now, you know, you can hire little pedalo boats on there and the the complexity of the, the process was fascinating um, to watch. And as each bit went up and we used to be in the headquarters building on a good day, you could kind of see sort of right, vaguely where it was. Um, but there was one day where there was quite a lot of the building, had, had, you know, was, was happening. And um, going on a, a site visit on a bus and it was cold and it was wet and muddy and Seb was there and he was like, do you want to get up the bus? And it's like, not really. Fine, I'll just stay on the bus and look. He's like, oh, do you want to get up? No, I don't want to. He's like, Tiny, get off the bus. Okay. And, you know, a wheelchair user in mud is not great. But then realising when I got off the bus that where I was sitting, um, they were kind of, the track was starting to be pegged out. And so you could see the, the cones around the, the bend. And it was like, oh, wow, I'm sitting on the 100 meter finish line. And and I remember just said, go and see, told you. And I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, you're right. I should have got off the bus. Which and, and that was just like, wow. And then I remember the first time I went in to the stadium when it was virtually completed, there was a moment where um, Alison Kerbishley, ex-GB runner, we were on the track together and going, do you want to have a, should you have a walk around? Yeah, go on. And she's like, do you want to, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to push very quickly around. But but both of us went and kind of, every track feels different and, and you can you can feel it when you stand on it or when you push on it. And it's like, oh, this is nice. So it was great to be kind of working on the games. It would have been amazing to compete there. But then knowing what was going to happen afterwards was also really exciting, you know, because it felt... I think some people thought that, you know, the Paralympics finished and the next day people would start moving into the village. Like, that's not how it works. But knowing what was coming was great. And then, you know, after that, I, I joined the board. So being part of that process was, was fascinating. When you look back at your work as part of the London Legacy Development Corporation board, how proud are you then of what's been achieved at Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park? 
I mean, Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park is incredible. Um, you know, the the transport links in there would not have happened without the games. You know, the redevelopment of the, there is so much that just would not have happened. Bits might have, but not not to the extent. And I think you know everyone stepped in and stepped up and you know looked at okay, what do we need to do now? And you know it it's been hard. And you're balancing the different boroughs and you know planning and and people's view of legacy who do or don't know anything about it. But I think when you look at the the venues, how they're used, the housing, you know, the community work, it's incredible. And I was talking to someone this week who hadn't been to the park since the games and just she just said she couldn't believe it because the last time she was there, you know, they had fences. And it was always the plan that, you know, it, it wouldn't be something that's just dumped on that part of London, that it would kind of blend in. Every time I go back, there is something that's a bit different, whether it's the planting or there is stuff that's different and how people use it and experience it. So it's incredible, a huge, a huge, huge amount of work that's happened to get there. But I think everyone should be proud. It, it is a true legacy of the 2012 Games. Legacy is a big word, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't just mean grassroots participation or school playing fields. When you look at the fact there's universities on the site, there's innovation hubs on the site, it's more than just that that piece about getting more school children playing sport, for example. Legacy is so much more. And, you know, it's actually hard to even list all the stuff that's happening there because there is so much. You know, BBC Orchestra, um, you know, the universities, uh, Sadler's Wells, you know, V&A. There is just so much stuff. And and even, you know, the early years of being on the board, when we were talking about some of these things, it felt like, oh, wow, that's that's huge. And then it's happened. Because I think people see the opportunity, because there's space in a way that there's not in other parts of London um, to do things. So uh, it's amazing. And, you know, I, I get to go back for different things, you know, some sports events, sometimes just kind of going for a coffee. And it's it's really lovely to remember what it was like at games time but but you know it, it's a it's a true legacy it's stuff is being used that's the bottom line of it it's not some white elephant you know stuck in you know the east end of london it's a place that it's a community and it's a home for people and, and that's that is what legacy should be it should be every, you know everything not not just participation Final question then. Two favourites. Favourite memory from games time and favourite place to go back to on the park now. Favourite memory from games time is coming out of the stadium on the Thursday night that Johnny Peacock won the 100 metres and talking to a family of a young disabled girl whose mum just said the games had just changed stuff for her. And that was amazing. Uh, And just, you know, you kind of think everything was worth it because people had a great time. Favourite place? Uh, I love going and sitting at the bottom of the orbit. <laughs> I I like to think the idea for having the slide on it was mine because in a slightly throwaway comment at some point I'd said, we should turn it into a slide. Um, I'm not sure anyone remembers that. I love sitting at the bottom and watching people get off. I love it, watching the excitement of people going up and then people coming down. And on a lovely summer day, you know, having a, a coffee from the cafe and just sitting there watching, you know, between that and the fountains and everything, just it being a place that people want to go to, that is just the best spot in the world to be sitting. 
final message then to people who've maybe not been back to Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park since games time or even during games time? What would you say to them? If you're at Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park during games time, you won't recognise it. And that is amazing. If you haven't been there, go. I mean, it's just, it's easy to get to. There's loads of stuff around. Uh, it's it's a it's a really lovely place to celebrate all that we should be really proud of about being British. We can build things. We can deliver things. We can make things happen. And, and that's something that everyone involved should be really proud of. Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson reflecting on her two decades of involvement at Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. This is the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park podcast. To find out more about what is happening, please follow or check out the website queenelizabetholympicpark.co.uk. Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park.